Romans chapter 2 is our passage for this morning, if you'd open up there. I lived in China 20 years ago, lived there for two years. I remember after being there a number of months, being invited to a party. It wasn't the only time this actually happened to me. A number of times I was invited to these parties. And, um, you know, I was somewhat acclimated to the, the, the place. I'd gotten settled in and been there long enough to not only be comfortable, but even to be a little bit homesick, homesick for you know, the comforts of home, the food of home, all those things. And I remember going to this party and seeing all of the sort of the stuff laid out, all the dumplings and the silkworms or whatever they have for their food. And then right in the middle was the centerpiece, a cake. And it was beautiful. It was massive. I just remember looking at it. And I believe if Chinese have done anything, they have perfected the art of cake decorating. I mean, this thing, every cake I saw in China, I don't think I ever saw a cake that wasn't decorated, I mean, just down to the most minute detail. I mean, I just couldn't believe I was gazing at this thing, just just taking in its splendor, as well as wanting to take in its content. So I was sitting there waiting for the party to get to that place when they would serve the cake, and sure enough, it came along, and I'm sitting there, and they give me the cake, and they give me the spoon they didn't have forks they would eat it with a spoon and i remember just just looking at that thing and digging the spoon into it and the anticipation the anticipation of that hitting my tongue and the sweetness filling my mouth and all that stuff and the moment it happened there was no sugar it was a lump of wheat and egg and lard and, and the icing, if you could say it this way, I, I'm not sure it's the right way. The icing was especially lardy. <laughs> it's hard to put into words the disappointment, really. And I remember going through that over and over again as I would go to the parties in, in uh, Chinese places, and they always have the cake, and I, I just kept, I would look, and I was like, this time. This time they remembered the key ingredient. This time they did it the right way, and every time. I'm telling you, I never had a cake the whole time I was there that ever had an ounce of sugar, I think, in it, or maybe I'm just so over-sugared, I had a different expectation. But that's, uh, that's sort of my story of the counterfeit cake, you know, my counterfeit cake background. And it sort of provides a fitting picture for our passage this morning as we move to Romans, because Paul is, if you will, talking about people who have these splendorous appearances, religiously speaking, but when you sort of get beyond the surface when you dig a little bit deeper into their life, what you find is that they're missing key ingredients. They're missing key ingredients as splendorous as the appearance may be. There are plenty of people who get along with nothing but spiritual appearances, but with no substantive reality at the core Now, this is Paul's point in Romans chapter 2 overall, as he's addressing mostly religious people. And our text this morning, particularly in verses 17 through the end of the chapter, is Paul appealing to these religious or specifically Jewish people and urging them to move beyond or to look past the appearance to the realities of their life that lie underneath because they, like everyone else, have a tendency to be duped or, or, or to be uh, even uh, uh, deceived by the appearance of their own life. 
And so Paul says to them, beginning in verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing? Do you steal? You who say that one must, commit, uh, must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is, of deed, is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, and nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. We've been saying for the last uh, couple of weeks, people read this chapter and they struggle. They struggle to really know everything that Paul's trying to convey here, because In the big picture, he seems pretty clear that he is laying before us God's basic demand in judgment, that you do the law, that you do what it commands. So he says in verse 6 of chapter 2, that we will be judged according to our works, or he'll render to us according to our works. He says in verses 12 and 13, that it's not the hearers of the law who are justified before God, but it's the doers of the law. And so people hear that, and they understand that, and that's clear in the minds of many believers. But what they struggle with is the fact that in the course of all of this discussion about doing, Paul mixes in a number of points about your heart, or about your inner man, or about those kinds of things. And so people begin to wonder if he's trying to set a contrast between those who maybe do things insincerely versus those who do things sincerely or from the heart, as if somehow God is really looking in the day of judgment for those who do things sincerely And he's going to acknowledge and give credit, or we would say justify, those people based on their sincere works, and those who do them insincerely, he won't justify. But as we said last time, that's not Paul's point in this passage. It's not his point in the first three chapters of the book. His point is not that some of the works that you do will justify you before God, or some of the works that you do will not. That's not the point. The point in chapter 3 that he comes and eventually summarizes is that no work, no work will justify you before God. God may judge your works, He may examine your works, He may reward your works, but you're never going to be justified based on your works. You're never going to be justified based on what you do, whether sincerely or insincerely, because you could never do anything sincerely enough to make any difference in your justification. No matter how deep you think it might be. 
And this is really what Paul is trying to lay out in this chapter. He's trying to tell us not that, that, that God is going to allow some works because they're done sincerely. What he's trying to tell us is that God is going to judge both the outer man and the inner man. And he's going to find both of them wanting. He's going to find both of them lacking. Because when the law commands, when it calls for you to be a doer, a doer of the law defined by Scripture is not just the outer works. It involves also the inner heart. In other words, when God demands something of you in the end, He will demand not just your actions, but it also demand the right heart behind it. Or another way to say this is God, when He's going to judge, He's going to judge all of it. He's going to judge your actions, your failure to act, and the motives that stand behind all of it. So, so when we, we begin to think about all of this, when we begin to think about what the Bible has to say about the judgment, we are to feel the full weight of what we are up against. We are to feel the full weight of the darkness and the blackness of our heart. That is the point. And this is why you're never supposed to look simply at your deeds. The Bible never wants people to look simply at their, at their external life, although this is exactly what a lot of people do, and this is certainly what the Jews did. They measured themselves by certain exterior standards, by certain exterior activities, by certain externally oriented lists, and, and if they could match those lists, and if they met those criteria, they felt fairly secure in their standing before God. That criteria that they had in their minds, they felt like established them, validated them, justified them, secured them, or whatever it might be. And what Paul does in these verses is he goes directly after that list. He attacks that list. And, and not all of it maybe exhaustively, but it's pretty comprehensive because he's out to expose the illegitimate hope that all of these things are in their lives. And although there are uh, several verses here, Paul really is just piling up a bunch of different uh, uh, of these criteria, a bunch of different phrases that represent a number of things that Jews would have applied to themselves in, in this uh, uh, external measuring. One of the difficulties that people have when they look at the, the, this particular section, it, one of the reasons that they don't really capture, I believe, what Paul is saying is because he, he has uh, an if-then clause, but there's no then. You'll see in verse 17, he begins this by saying, if you call yourself a Jew, but then you can go down through all the rest of the verses and you'll never find the second part of that. You'll never find the then, and so on and so on. This is in, in syntactical terms. This is an anacoluthon. It's, an, it's missing the second part of the, of the phrase. And so we have to sort of guess what it is that Paul has in his mind when he begins the statement. We have to sort of guess what the conclusion is that we're supposed to draw from the conditions that he lays out. And I think to do that, you have to go to chapter 3 in verse 1. As Paul sort of summarizes what he has just said, he says this, what is the advantage? What advantage does the Jew have? 
What is the advantage to you if all of these things are true? And his point in verses 17 through 29 is there's no advantage. Zero advantage. It gets you nothing. None of these things provide any standing, any merit, any spiritual advantage. All they do is provide appearances. And in those appearances, often false hope. As there's some deeper issues that are still uncovered that are really masked underneath all of these external things. And Paul wants really these Jews and he wants you and I to get past the appearances and get down to what is really on the inside. To really face up with what we are and what we face in the judgment. So to do that, Paul takes them through sort of a uh, almost a logical progression. First of all, he wants to help get, get them past their privileges as Jews. You call yourself a Jew, you rely on the law, you boast in God, you know His will, you approve what is excellent because you're instructed in the law. Six verbs that are all sort of uh, drawing attention to these privileges, particularly as it relates to the law. Maybe not the first one. The first one is very general. You call yourself a Jew... That is someone basically who is from Judea, from the promised land. And in these days, or those days of Paul, I should say, this would have been a badge of honor. Every Jewish person would have gladly proclaimed themselves a Jew. They would have used the word. They would have loved the word. It was a point of boasting. We may not have that today because people attach Uh, negative connotations to the word Jew. And so we're sort of taught in sort of a, I guess you could say politically correct language to use people of Jewish descent or something like that. But in those days, there was no negative connotation, at least in the minds of a Jew. They loved the word. They would gladly take the word. They loved to call themselves Jews because in their mind, it identified them with God's select people, with God's elect people with the people that God had chosen out as His special people. And so it was a point of bragging, a point of boasting, as if to say that they are better off than everyone else, or at least closer to God than everyone else, because God had chosen to bring them nearer to Himself than everyone else. In that sense, it represents not only for these Jews, but for any person who might have some sense of belonging to a special group, to a special movement, to a church, to a brand, to whatever, that somehow because they're a part of that movement, they will somehow get some credit. They'll somehow be okay. And Paul is just at the very beginning putting that on the table so that he can help them move beyond that. And then he adds, you rely on the law. In other words, this was... This might have been the evidence in their mind. This was the evidence that they were the select people. The fact that God had given them the Bible. The the fact that God had given them the book, the law, the Torah, the scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Moses says, see, I have taught you statutes and laws as the Lord my God commanded me. 
that you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the, sights of pe- in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call on Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Psalm 147, the psalmist says, He declares His word to Jacob, His statutes and rules to Israel He has not thus dealt with any other nation. They do not know his rules. So this was something that the Jews would commonly draw attention to. These were the things they read even in their own scripture about the uniqueness of their privilege and their position that they, among all the peoples of the earth, had received this book, had received these revelations. And so they they relied on that, not in the sense directly that they, they necessarily relied on every single word, that they just relied on the fact that they had it. This was an evidence of their special standing before God. Like a person that might be born today in a context where they would be under the word of God, maybe in a Christian context, maybe in a church context where they hear the word of God taught, they hear the word of God proclaimed, they see it even modeled for them sometimes. And by virtue of that, their life is somewhat conformed to at least the ethics or the standards of this book. And yet they grow up and they begin to think that because of that, Because that, and they look at people who are in a Buddhist context or a Hindu context or an Islamic context, and they see the divergence in those people's lives and the vast difference in their values and the way they live, and they just assume that because they were born in a place that had the scriptures that somehow God likes them more, instead of putting themselves right in the same shoes with that Muslim, with that Buddhist, with that Hindu, with everybody else. Paul's putting it all on the table. Don't don't imagine that just that external environment you live in, of having the book, makes any difference. Don't imagine, he says, even they would boast about God. That is to say that they, they claimed God as some special possession or some even special relationship. Micah Uh, confronts the people of his day in Micah 3. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice, make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in our midst? No disaster shall come upon us. In other words, they just assume that because they were in the, the, the right environment or because they were in the right nation or in the right group because they identified themselves under God that somehow, because they mentioned God's name, that would shield them from any kind of judgment. Or he says, you know God's will. And this was certainly a boast of Israel. 
that not only did they have the law, but they had combed through the law. They had taken it and they had applied it and defined it in every kind of minute situation imaginable so that they added to the law all of these external codes and strictures and writings that surrounded the law now so that they had a confidence that they could tell you in every situation exactly what God's will was. They could define it black and white, through and through. They knew his will. So that, Paul says, you approve what is excellent. So that you're now you just know you have these, you have all your decisions laid down for you. All the standards are set because you're instructed from the law. That's his sort of summary statement. And all of these phrases, none of them stand alone. They just all, they all capture all the ways that Jews spoke of themselves, all the ways that they pointed to their distinct nature, their distinct privileges. And Paul's laying it on the table for them to consider as he works his way toward his conclusion. He wants them to consider not only their privileges, but he also wants them to consider their presumption. That's what he gets to really in verse 19 and 20, the presumption that they have that they, because of these things, are teachers, they're instructors, they're at the head of the class, whatever it might be. He says, you, you are sure, you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, that everyone else is blind, you're the ones who see, and that therefore, based on simply your ethnicity, based on your race, based on your situation, based on your knowledge, that you somehow see the way. Remember, Jesus even confronted this when he was talking to the Pharisees. He told them, if you were blind, then you would have no guilt. But because you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus confronted this idea in the minds of Jews. The assumption that because they have knowledge, because they have all this other thing, that somehow they see, somehow that they are a guide. And he says, no, really the pathway to sight, the pathway, pathway to seeing is what? It is to admit your guilt. It is to declare your faltering, your failing, your sin, your weakness. Israel didn't do that. They didn't claim to be guides because they were the first to admit their guilt, because they were the quickest to declare their fault, because they were the the, uh, most eager to confess their sins, because they were always the one humbling themselves. That's not their, that wasn't the basis of their claim to guidance. The basis of their claim to guidance is the fact that they knew better, they saw better, they knew everything, not the fact that they were weak and wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind. I was listening this week, I think it was this week or last week, my wife was uh, telling me about this uh, YouTube video she'd seen of a pastor, and he was talking to his congregation, and he said, because I know some of you are, are divorced out here, and you know, we, know, we know how it all goes, you know, it's 50, everyone says it's 50-50, but we know it's not 50-50. I mean, everyone says that, but they don't really... They don't really think that. I mean, we all know the truth. It's not 50-50. It's really, it was really 90% them. And we know that you only did 10%. And I was sitting here listening to the story, and I was kind of waiting 
waiting for the turn and it never happens. And I just thought about how that just turns on its head what Jesus taught us. That in order to deal with the speck in your brother's eye, what do you do first? You deal with a log in your own. You can't see the little thing in their life until you deal with the massive thing in your life. And Jesus didn't say, look, really, your part is just the speck. And their part is the log. No, the assumption of wisdom, the assumption of those who truly see, is that when they see, what they see is their own sin. What is most glaring in their life isn't the fault of others. What is most glaring in their life is the weakness and the frailty and the faltering of their own life. That is sight. And confessing that and and repenting of that and humbling yourself in that, that is guidance. That's leadership. That's why Jesus goes on to call the Pharisees blind guides of the blind because they never reach that point. Paul says here in Romans 2, they thought they were a light to those who were in darkness. This was another uh, way that they described themselves. It would come out of the scripture as well, particularly out of the servant songs uh, among other places in scripture. Those in Paul's day, in the day of Christ, those passages out of Isaiah 40 through 55 were often uh, interpreted Not as promises about a coming Messiah, but as promises about the nation of Israel. And so they read places like Isaiah 42, 6. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I'll give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. And so this is the way Israel thought about themselves. This is the way Jews thought about themselves. We're, we're the ones that are going to bring the light to the world. We're going to ones that are going to shine the light across all the darkness. And we're the, as he says in verse 20, the instructor of the foolish, the teacher of the children. They would refer to the Gentiles as one of these two things, foolish or senseless sometimes. They looked at the Gentile world as just a sea of senselessness and confusion and chaos. And they looked at themselves as the instructor, or the word really is a discipliner, could be a corrector. They were the ones who were bringing the correction to all these people who have it all wrong. They were the teacher of the children, as they would sometimes call their proselytes, those who left Gentiles, uh, the Gentile world and attached themselves to Judaism. They referred to them as children, their children. So they looked at themselves as the teacher of these little children having to bring them along in their foolishness, all because they had, as Paul says in verse 20, the embodiment or the uh, morphosin is the word, the core form, the core central part of the truth. They had knowledge and truth. And what all that led to, not only from this privilege and all this presumption, is preaching. And this is the next thing Paul wants to move them past. He wants to get all this on the table, get their, 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 their privileges, get all this presumption out there. If you will, concede all of those things in his ongoing indictment and even the preaching. And here he gets very pointed 
to help them see that all of this distinction and all of this privilege and all of these supposed advantages, knowing the truth, even proclaiming the truth, all of it wasn't enough. As he begins to point out the glaring hypocrisy, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? As Jesus said in Matthew 23, look, when the Pharisees talk to you, when they scribes sit in Moses' seat, do and observe whatever they tell you. Why? Because they're telling you things from the Bible. They're telling you things from the law. And the problem is not with the law. And the problem is not with the Bible. And the problem is not with the knowledge. God is not opposed to knowledge. He's not opposed to doctrine. He's not opposed to learning. He's not opposed to any of that stuff. That's not the problem. The problem is that when you have all that stuff and still don't do it. The problem is that when you have all that theology and all that knowledge and underneath all that stuff, you are burying a hidden life of shame. As he says, observe and do what they tell you, but don't practice their works because they preach, but do not practice. Or as Paul says, you teach others and you don't teach yourself. People struggle with the examples of what Paul puts forward here to validate his point because he seems rather extreme. You teach others not to steal, do you steal? You teach others not to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? And he read those things about stealing and adultery and robbing temples and it doesn't seem like the broadest application that Paul could have chosen. Doesn't seem like the most common types of sin. As if every single person is a thief and every single person is an adulterer or every single person is breaking into a temple and robbing it. Unless, of course, he's maybe doing what Christ did in Matthew 5 and telling us that the law has external manifestations, but the real struggle is the internal, that you might look at a woman or look at a man and lust after them in your heart and you'll be guilty of adultery in that case. But the issue is that when Jesus said that, He made it plain. He told you that he's talking about the internal. Paul never does that in these verses. Every indication is that he's talking about acts of robbery, acts of adultery, acts of stealing these or robbing these temples. And so probably the best way to understand this is that Paul is not speaking on an individual level. He's speaking on a national level. He's not trying, in other words, to say something that will indict every single one of them as individuals, but he's saying something that will indict them as Jews. Because this was their point of pride. Their point of pride was the fact that they were a Jew. It would be like going to an American who might have a sense of pride that they're an American, and you say to them, are you really proud to be an American? Are you, do you even look around you? Do you see the greed? Do you see the selfishness? Do you see the consumerism? Do you see the abuse? Do you see the adultery? Do you see the profaning? Do you see, and are you proud of that? And you begin to shrink back and and maybe rethink whether or not what you thought was a point of pride is really pride at all. That's what he's doing. He's, He's speaking to them on a national level because whereas maybe not every one of them was a thief and a robber, It was prevalent enough in their society that they were, as he says down in verse 24, 
the name of God is being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's not talking about an individual there. He's talking about you, plural. Because you as a nation and the way that you're behaving, you're bringing God's name into dishonor. This might have been internally. Maybe it was something simple like weighting the scales at the market so that people would be overpaying for things. Or maybe it was moving the border. You know, they didn't have... They didn't have uh, survey crews and, and stakes in the ground those days. They were just stones that marked your property. And it was not uncommon for someone to come along the edge of their property and scoot that stone maybe a few feet into their neighbor's land. And so maybe it was some of just that internal corruption that you read about in Isaiah chapter 5 as they were seizing the houses of widows and making their own mansions larger. Or maybe... Maybe it wasn't even internal. Maybe the Jews were just known and hated throughout the Gentile world because they were looked at as always trying to, dis, uh, uh, to, 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 to uh, take advantage of people, to not give a fair trade or whatever it might be, but they were looked at as thieves. And not only that, they were well known as adulterers. Now, it would have been maybe what we think of as outright adultery, but they had justifiable adultery within their religious system. You say, well, how is that? Well, Jesus talks about it in in Matthew 19, that although they may not explicitly violate a marriage vow with someone they're married to, what they came up with were laws of easy divorce. I mean, we think that we have laws of easy divorce. There's nothing compared to these guys. They just wrote on a piece of paper whatever it was that bothered them about their wife, and they sent her packing. They just write her a writ of divorce for whatever reason at all, as the Pharisees say to Jesus. And so while they weren't necessarily in, in a violation of their particular code, what he points out to them is, is that you are serial adulterers. You are just successively going from one uh, partner, one relationship to the next, and that isn't God's design for marriage. You are guilty, and this apparently was a massive problem in the first century uh, Israel. We, we read about it in Herod's life. We read about it through Jesus' teaching. We read about it in Jewish documents that divorce was a major problem. And it would have been looked on by the outside world as the hypocrisy that it is. But the one people struggle with the most is the third one. You abhor idols, but you rob temples. Because as many people point out, there isn't a lot of literature that indicates that this was a widespread problem. You don't have a lot of Gentiles complaining about their temples being robbed by Jews. You don't have a lot of Jews really writing about robbing temples. And so if this was taking place, we wouldn't say it took place on a wide scale. But you could imagine if it took place, that it would have been, even in isolated incidents, scandalous. For you to go into some uh, pagan temple and to take all of the treasures and to take all the precious metals and to take all the uh, whatever it might be would have sent a city into an uproar. And so it didn't need to even happen a lot of times for it to have become a blight against the name of the Jews. And it would be very easy to imagine that there were some zealots 
in first century Judaism who would have done something just like this. They would have broken into temples. They would have robbed in the name of some justifiable end. As a matter of fact, in Acts 19, when Paul and his companions are drugged before the clerk of the city, the magistrate of the city, his first question is, why are you bringing these men to me? They haven't robbed the temple, have they? In other words, as he's trying to figure out why these Jews are being brought, the first thing that comes to his mind is they might have robbed the temple. So it must have been common enough for him to at least have that as a primary suspicion. But whatever it is, it was dishonoring God. These people who claim that they want nothing to do with idolatry are happy enough to line their own pockets with the proceeds of it. People who claim that they hate immorality, but go out there and welcome immorality if it can earn them a buck or two. Well, this is, all this is exposing that while they have some exterior code, some exterior criteria, something is, something is amiss underneath. There's something fundamentally that's wrong underneath, which really takes us even to the next issue for the Jews, a core issue for the Jews, which was their pointless signs. If this is the case, if this is what's the reality of your life, then you might as well recognize that all the spiritual, all the religious signs that you have, they're they're useless. The, particularly Paul draws attention to circumcision. Verse 25, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who's uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. Now, don't confuse what Paul's saying here. He's not suggesting that there will be people who are uncircumcised who will keep the law. That's not his point. He's already ruled that out in chapter 1. His point is that you can level the playing field. That if someone were to come along and keep the law, them not having circumcision would not be a factor. Meaning... That circumcision has zero importance. Zero importance in the fact of God's judgment or the factor of God's judgment. These are the Jews who wouldn't have believed that. In fact, they felt like just simply not being circumcised was automatically to be condemned. But they certainly on the flip side assumed that if you are circumcised even if you don't have everything perfect, that you are at least a part of a covenant, identifiable, blessed, and and especially favored people. And because of that, they put a lot of stock in this issue of their circumcision. It'd be like someone coming along today, you know, not really particularly religious, but they look back and they were baptized as a baby. They were baptized into a church or whatever it might be. And they just assume that while everything's not right in their life, at least they've got that going for them. And what Paul's saying, it doesn't matter. 
That doesn't matter. Your church membership doesn't matter. All that out, uh, outside, external, uh, identifying markers, whatever it might be, it doesn't matter if you are not a doer of the law. If you don't obey the law, if you aren't a keeper of the law, all of your external, exterior stuff will be pointless. Pointless circumcision, pointless baptisms, pointless membership, pointless this, pointless that. It's all pointless. It'll matter for nothing. In fact, if you have your Bibles, flip with me for a moment to Deuteronomy chapter 10 because... This is actually not a new idea. Some people have this impression that the Old Testament unfolds like a, uh, a plot with a twist in the middle that is somewhat unexpected either by the authors or by God himself or whatever it might be. When it comes time for the Jews to take possession of the land, receive the law, they go in, they are supposed to be the people of God, and they utterly fail. And they would say in various times and in various ways and in various places that because they failed, or they would say because they broke the covenant that God made with them, that God either, in some cases, they would say that... that, that uh, uh, that God replaced Israel with a new people, or maybe in modern terms, you're more likely to hear it, that God is recapitulating Israel in a new people. As if somehow this plan was plan A, and plan A didn't work out as God designed it, and so now He's going with plan B and a different kind of people. Well, you read in the Old Testament, and nothing could be further from the truth. You read Deuteronomy 10, when God gives the tablets of stone, He gives the Ten Commandments, He gives the what we would call the Mosaic Code, the Old Covenant. He tells them from the beginning what His expectation is in verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and no longer be stubborn. So He gives them the law from the very beginning. And what He says is, I'm giving this to you, and what I want is both external conformity and internal compliance, or we might say internal renewal, a brand new heart, a circumcised heart. You go to the end of the book, Deuteronomy 30, and without taking you through all the nitty-gritty details, God basically says to them, look, I'm giving you this law, and in chapters 27, 28, and 29, He basically says, you're going to fail. I'm giving you the law, and you won't do it. And because you won't do it, he says in chapter 29, I'm going to judge you, I'm going to scatter you among all the nations, all these places. I'm going to send you into this exile. And you come to chapter 30, and you read in verse 5, And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So you hear what's happening. At the beginning, God gives it to them. He says, here's my law, and I want a circumcised heart with it. And then he goes all the way through the book, and he says, by the way, you can't do that. So here's what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to give you the circumcised heart. This is in my plan. This is the way I'm laying it out from the beginning. There is no need to reassess. There is no need to transfer. There is no need to to recapitulate. This is the plan. This is the promise that God would bring Israel out of this time of of disobedience and uncircumcised hearts, and he would give them exactly everything that he demands of them that they couldn't produce themselves. Now, all this makes sense when you go on and read back over in Romans chapter 2, what Paul has to say, no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit and not not by the letter. People read that and they say, wow, Paul is redefining a Jew. Here, Here is the New Testament, Jesus, Paul, completely redefining a Jew. He's not redefining a Jew. He's reiterating. I mean, the language that he uses there comes right out of Deuteronomy 30. And what he's telling them in Romans 2 is nothing that they haven't already heard in the Old Testament. That when God makes his demands of you to be a doer of the law, his demand involves not just the exterior, but the interior. And what God told them back then, he would tell you today that what you are asked from God, you cannot give. What God demands from you, you cannot comply. Because while you might be able to come up with some criteria, some list of externals that you could somewhat comply with, what you cannot, what you cannot comply with is the need for a new heart, a circumcised heart. The Jews couldn't do it. You can't do it. As Jeremiah says, as a leopard can't change his spots and the Ethiopian can't change the color of his skin, so you, who are born evil, you can't be doers of good. You can't change yourself into doers of good. You can have appearances. You can have exteriors. You can have... Even the accolades of men, which really Paul is his final point there at the end of the chapter, the fifth thing that he wants to move them beyond, which is who they prioritize in the praise that they're seeking. They, they were happy to simply get the praise of men. They were happy if their parents were satisfied with them, if their spouses were satisfied, if their community looked at them and said, look, you're good, you're upright, you're, you're doing well, that was good enough for them. But he says, it's not good enough for God. It really doesn't matter what the appearance is. It doesn't matter how beautifully it's decorated. What God wants to know is, what are the ingredients on the inside? What are the ingredients on the inside? Just a bunch of lard and fat and filler? Or is it the real substance of a spiritual heart that he demands? The scripture says that all of us are born with wicked hearts. All of us are born with rebellious hearts. All of us are born not wanting God or His law. 
in our lives. Although we may be religious, although we might put on appearances, we do that simply for others. But at the very core, if we strip away all that stuff, if we begin to look at the inconsistencies of our life, then we realize that that stuff makes us no better off than anybody else. We stand before God as those who are not doers. We stand before God as those who are not compliant. We stand before God as those who are filthy on the outside and filthy on the inside. Deficient on the outside, deficient on the inside. We stand before God not having what He demands. And because of that, we stand condemned. But the good news is Christ gives a brand new heart. He not only gives a new heart, but He gives forgiveness for all that exterior failing, for all the ways that you have incurred guilt, for all the shame because of that guilt. God brings cleansing. But He doesn't just bring external cleansing. He brings internal renewal. He takes that heart that you're born with that isn't interested in God, isn't really interested in spiritual things, and He gives you a new heart. He takes away the resistant, outer, hardened flesh. And what He gives you is something that is tender to God, humble and repentant, open to rebuke, ready to admit your faults and confess your sin. He gives you what He demands. So that when you stand before God, God is not only your judge, He's your provider. He's not only your judge, He's your Savior. Listen, this is the message of Christ. This is the message of the gospel. If you're here today, you're here maybe with your mom, you're here with some friends, you're here to fulfill a religious duty and to make an appearance. Don't come here today without hearing this. That appearance will do you nothing on the day of judgment. Appearance may please somebody here, but it won't please God. And what God demands, you don't have. But you can have it today. You can have it today. You can leave here today a new person, forgiven and transformed. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for these words of clarity, these words calling us to a place of faith, to a place of honesty, to a place of renewal. I pray that they would penetrate. I pray your word would penetrate past all of the pretension and the presumptuousness, past all of the pride of our hearts. I pray they would penetrate down. And make us see the full darkness of our life and our heart before you. So that we can repent. So that we can confess. I pray for those, Lord, who've never done that. That they would even today, even before they leave here. I pray that they would give their heart and their life to you. That they would be whole, complete, and forgiven having every demand of yours met because of Christ who fulfills their needs and who transforms their heart and life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.